Good morning and welcome back to Axioms of Liberty, where we're going to dive deep into the most philosophical thinkers of our era to help you build a better foundation to understand your world. And we're going to continue with the Voluntarist Handbook, Chapter 15, How Private Governance Made the Modern World Possible, by Edward P. Stringham. What makes markets and especially advanced contracts possible? Most social scientists, including a high percentage of libertarian ones, describe the world as fraught with prisoners' dilemmas. The idea that collaborators would be better off working together, but they each have an incentive to cheat. That can only be solved by government. For example, Israel Herzner suggests that markets need governmental extra-market enforcement, stating that Without enforceability of contract, the markets cannot operate. Similarly, Manker Olson states that without institutions that enforce contracts impartially, a society will lose most of the gains from transactions like those in the capital market that require impartial third-party enforcement. But in many cases, government officials do not have the knowledge, incentive, or even the ability to enforce contracts or property rights in a low-cost way. Consider parties contracting in third-world countries where trials take much more than a decade. Or consider parties in a first world making a contract where time is of the essence or a lot of money is at stake. Who wants to get large resources tied up in a trial that can take months or even years? Or consider making a low-value exchange where the cost of going to trial vastly exceeds the value of a transaction. Or consider making a transaction across political boundaries which makes establishing jurisdiction for a trial very difficult. At a minimum, using courts or government law enforcers requires time and resources and as a practical matter, entire classes of contracts are effectively unenforceable. Judges, police, and regulators are a deus ex machina. Government is often dysfunctional and crowds out private sources of order, or it is simply absent or too costly to use. That means parties can either live with their problems or attempt to solve them. Such is the world, but quite often solving problems is a profit opportunity and the more at stake, the more potentially profitable the solutions. Throughout history, we can see lots of examples of how private parties benefiting by figuring out better ways of facilitating exchange or protecting property rights. These protections of the market come not from government, but from the market itself. In his theories of clubs, James Buchanan argued that we should not assume that goods either must be private goods for one person or public goods for everyone in society but instead a high percentage of goods are club goods that fall somewhere in between. One of the most important but underappreciated types of club goods is private governance. The various forms of private enforcement, self-governance, or self-regulation among private groups or individuals that fill a void that government enforcement cannot a country club or nightclub not only provide a physical space for leisure, but they also have rules of entry and conduct. 
The same is true of places of business or living, like shopping malls, apartment complexes, stock exchanges, financial intermediaries. eBay, for example, is a club that facilitates trade with reputation mechanisms and dispute resolution services. It evaluates the marginal benefits and marginal costs of having various rules or dispute resolution mechanisms and seeks to make its market as attractive as possible. American Express is another type of club that helps ensure that consumers get what they pay for and merchants get paid. Most people don't think of their credit card as a rule-enforcing club, but that's exactly what it is. A merchant that overcharges customers or a customer who does not pay his bills gets kicked out of the club and that encourages honest behavior. Private governance helps protect property rights and facilitates trade in everything from the simplest to the world's most advanced markets. It operates in markets where government theoretically can enforce contracts and where government explicitly refuses to enforce contracts. Let us consider some of the following examples. In a world of first major stock markets, government officials considered much of the trading as a form of gambling or speculation used to manipulate prices. In the first stock market in the 17th century, Amsterdam, government refused to enforce all but the simplest securities contracts. After the founding of the Dutch East Indian Company in 1602, a secondary market for shares emerged among brokers who began specializing in trading stocks. Officials soon passed edicts outlawing their nascent market, but stockbrokers continued trading and developed many sophisticated transactions, including forward contracts, short sales, and options. How is that possible? Instead of formal rules, stockbrokers relied on reciprocity and reputation mechanisms to encourage contractual compliance. In contrast to the one-shots-prisoners dilemma story, most business is repeated and brokers had to be reliable if they wanted others to do business with them. Not only would a defaulter sour his relationship with his trading partner, but he would be boycotted by everyone else who found out. Reputation thus served as a substitute to formal rules. The market was wildly successful and helped finance the Dutch Golden Age. Some estimates put the market capitalization of the Dutch East Indian Company in current dollars of about $7 trillion. Modern New Yorkers can thank the Dutch East India Company for financing Henry Hudson's first voyage to New York's North River, the Hudson River, and the Dutch West India Company for founding New Amsterdam. The stock market in England had many similarities. In 18th century London, officials banned stockbrokers from the Royal Exchange and also refused to enforce most contracts. The market persisted anyway with brokers meeting in coffee houses around Change Alley. Adam Smith described how time bargains, or also known as forward contracts, were unenforceable but people made them and abided by them anyway. He stated, A dealer is afraid of losing his character and is scrupulous in observing every engagement. When a person makes 20 contracts in a day, he cannot gain so much by endeavoring to impose on his neighbors. 
as the very appearance of a cheat would make him lose. If someone defaulted, brokers would label him a lame duck and brokers eventually began writing the names of the defaulters on a blackboard. Later, brokers decided to transform Jonathan's Coffee House into a private club that could create and enforce the rules. The club, later known as New Jonathan's, the Stock Subscription Room, and then the Exchange or the Stock Exchange, had membership requirements and rules for dealing with default. They adopted as their motto, My word is my bond. One can see a similar history in New York about a century later. Early stockbrokers met in Torrentine Tavern and Coffee House, which in 1797 adopted a constitution and nominations of the subscribers. In 1817, others founded the New York Stock Exchange and Board. The New York Stock Exchange, which had a more formal membership requirements and rules. Brokers added different resolutions over the years, and by the 1860s, in addition to blacklisting those who did not follow through with their contracts to make sure everyone was proper, they had rules prohibiting indurious language, suspension for a week, fines for smoking in the boardroom or in the anterooms of $5, and fines for standing on tables or chairs of $1. By 1865, the initiation fee was $3,000, and by 1868, one's membership seat became a valuable property right that could be sold to potential members. They also created listing requirements for firms that wanted to be traded on the big board. The New York Stock Exchange always had to compete for business and throughout the years face competition from the open board of brokers, merged with the New York Stock Exchange in 1869. The curb market and its more formal outgrowth, the New York Curb Exchange, founded in 1921 and renamed the American Stock Exchange in 1953, the Consolidated Stock Exchange of New York founded in the 1800s, the regional stock exchanges included the Boston Exchange and the Philadelphia Stock Exchange, founded in 1834 and 1754 respectively, the latter in the London Coffee House. By creating a set of rules to make stock markets more attractive to investors, they helped finance the growth of American businesses. In modern times, the largest and most advanced markets are also backed by private governance. Consider derivatives contracts, some of which can entail unlimited downside risk, and even the best legal system cannot recover an infinite amount. Even the notional value of contracts traded through the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, Chicago Board of Trade, and the New York Mercantile Exchange exceeds about $10 trillion per year. The contracts go without a hitch. When two parties make a trade through these exchanges, they are not actually making a contract with each other, but making separate contracts with the futures exchange. The futures exchange acts as an intermediary and assumes and manages risks for its customers. Rather than allowing any contract to occur and then attempting to enforce it ex post, they have various rules and margin requirements that specify what trades can be made. The risk management for these exchanges eliminates the need 
to have any of these contracts enforced in court. Other financial intermediaries also assume and manage risks on behalf of the customers. When doing business with PayPal or with most credit cards, if fraudsters make bogus transactions or attempt to take money out of an account, PayPal is on the hook. By 2001, fraudsters were stealing more than $10 million from PayPal per month at a time, when its gross annual revenue per year was only about $14 million. At first, PayPal contacted the FBI and found that it was of little help. After seeing the evidence, the FBI asked questions such as, what's a banner ad? These government officials were not at the forefront of technology, but even if they were, they still would have been powerless against anonymous fraudsters on the other side of the globe. Rather than sitting around and hoping that government would solve the problems, PayPal came up with private solutions to deal with fraud before it occurred. They developed human-assisted artificial intelligence to monitor accounts, search for suspicious activity, and temporarily or permanently suspend accounts. By assuming and managing risks on behalf of customers, PayPal transformed what many people assume must be legal questions into risk management questions. When parties can deal with problems ex-ante, ex-post contract enforcement is not the necessity that theorists like Kirzner or Olson assume. Private governance is responsible for creating order not just in basic markets, but also in the world's most sophisticated markets, including stock markets, future markets, and electronic commerce. The role of private governance in enabling stock markets and modern capitalism is one of the least known but most important achievements in the history of the world. Private governance also protects contracts and property rights in scores of other markets. Private governance can be found working in ancient and modern societies. In small and large groups, among friends and strangers, and for simple and extremely complex transactions. It often exists alongside, and in many cases in spite of, government legal efforts. I document more examples in my book, Private Governance, Creating Order in Economic and Social Life, published by Oxford University Press. Friedrich Hayek used the word marvel to describe the price system and its role in coordinating disparate individuals. The mechanisms of private governance are just as miraculous and responsible for creating order in markets as Thomas Paine writes, Great part of that order which reigns among mankind is not the effect of government. It has its origin in the principles of society and the natural constitution of man. It existed prior to government and would exist if the formality of government was abolished. The mutual dependence and reciprocal interest which man has upon man and all the parts of civilized community upon each other create the great chain of connection which holds it all together. The invisible hand analogy in economic sheds light on an underappreciated process of coordinating human behavior and the study of private governance sheds light on similarly underappreciated mechanisms for creating order.
private governance works behind the scenes, so most people miss it, but it makes the modern world possible. Well, there you go. There you have it. Stock exchange doesn't need government to exist. One would actually argue that because the government does regulate the stock exchange so much is what creates the avenues that allow so much fraud to actually occur within the government. What say you guys? Because I can pretty sure much agree that most of you probably agree with that fact. Mm-hmm. I think so. Uh, anybody remember GameStop in 2021? Yeah, I do. And what did they do? They took away the motherfucking buy button. They caught them with their hands down. Excuse me. Caught them with their pants down. And they were going to hand those hedge funds their ass. But because the government regulated that situation, what happened? They came in and changed the rules that allowed those people to get away with the fraud that they were actually imposing it's pretty sad to see to be honest but yes the invisible hand of economic coordination whether it be the pricing mechanism or even the contractual agreements between two parties that actually coordinate the economic activity that's actually needed in order to facilitate the modern world that we have today it's quite the modern marvel I'm thankful it exists. Now, let's continue. Chapter 16. The Misplaced Fear of Monopoly by Thomas E. Woods, Jr. Those of us who get drawn, often against our better judgment, into internet debates soon discover that the case against the market economy in the popular mind boils down to a few major claims. Here I intend to dissect one of them. Under the unhampered market, we'd be at the mercy of vicious monopolists. This fear can be attributed in part, no doubt, to the cartoon history of the 19th century virtually all of us were exposed to in school. There, we learned the rapacious robber barons gained overwhelming market share in their industries by means of all sorts of underhanded tricks, and then, once secure in their position, turned around and fleeced the helpless consumer, who had no choice but to pay the high prices that firm's monopoly position made possible. This version of events is so deeply embedded in Americans' brains that it is next impossible to dislodge it no matter the avalanche of evidence and argument applied against it. Historian Burton Folsman made an important distinction in his book, The Myth of the Robber Barons. Between political entrepreneurs and market entrepreneurs, the political entrepreneur succeeds by using the implicit violence of government to cripple his competitors and harm consumers. The market entrepreneur, on the other hand, makes his fortune by providing consumers with products they need at prices they can afford, and maintains and expands his market share by remaining innovative and responsive to consumer demand. It is only the political entrepreneur who deserves our censure, but both types are indiscriminately attacked in the popular caricature that has deformed American public opinion on the subject.
Andrew Carnegie, for instance, almost single-handedly reduced the price of steel rails from 160 per ton in 1875 to $17 per ton nearly a quarter century later. John D. Rockefeller pushed the price to refined petroleum down from 30 cents per gallon to 5.9 cents in 1897. Cornelius Vanderbilt, operating earlier in the century, reduced fares on steamboat transit by 90-95% on trips for which a fare was not charged. Vanderbilt earned his money by selling concessions on board. These are benefactors of mankind to be praised, not villains to be condemned. To be sure, there are caveats, as there always are in history. For a time, Carnegie did support steel tariffs, since he substantially reduced the price of steel rails, though this political position of his did not harm the consumer. Other critics will point to the Carnegie and Rockefeller foundations and the dubious causes those institutions have supported. Their objection is irrelevant to the specific question of whether the men themselves, in their capacity as entrepreneurs, improved the American standard of living. That question is not even debatable. Mainstream economics identifies monopolists by their behavior. They can earn premium profits by restricting output and raising prices. Was that behavior evident in the industries where monopoly was most frequently alleged to have existed? Economist Thomas DeLorenzo, in an important article in the International Review of Law and Economics, actually bothered to look. During the 1880s, when real GDP rose by 24%, output in industries alleged to have been monopolized for which data were available rose 175% in real terms. Prices in those industries, meanwhile, were generally falling, and much faster than the 7% decline for the economy as a whole. We've already discussed steel rails, which fell from $68 to $32 per ton during the 1880s. We might also note that the price of zinc, which fell from $5.51 to $4.41 per pound, a 20% decline and refined sugar, which fell from $0.09 cents to $0.07 cents per pound, another 22% decline. In fact, this pattern held true for all 17 supposedly monopolized industries, with the trivial exceptions of castor oil and matches. In other words, the story we thought we knew from history class was a lie. Predatory Pricing Beyond the appeal to specific examples from history, critics of the market propose plausible-sounding scenarios in which firms might be able to harm consumer welfare. Larger firms can afford to lower their prices even below costs, as long as it takes to drive the smaller competitors out of business. The major argument runs. Once that task is accomplished, the larger firms can raise their prices and take advantage of consumers who no longer have any other choice but to buy from them. That strategy on the part of larger firms is known as predatory pricing. Dominique Armento, professor of emeritus of economics at the University of Hartford, surveyed scores of important antitrust cases and failed to uncover 
a single successful example of predatory pricing. Chicago economist George Stigler noted that the theory has fallen into disfavor in professional circles. Today, it would be embarrassing to encounter this argument in professional discourse. There is a reason for that disfavor. The strategy is suicidal. For one thing, a large firm attempting predatory pricing must endure losses consumerate with its size. In other words, a firm holding, say, 90% of the market competing with a firm holding the remaining 10% of the market suffers losses on its 90% market share. Economist George Reisman correctly wonders what is supposed to be so brilliant and, and irresistible about a strategy that involves having a firm, albeit one with nine times the wealth and nine times the business, lose money at a rate nine times as great as the losses suffered by its competitors. The dominant firm, should it somehow succeed in driving all competitors from the market, must now drive prices back up to enjoy its windfall, without at the same time encouraging new entrants who will be attracted by the prospect of charging those high prices themselves into the field. Then, the predatory pricing strategy must begin all over again, further postponing the moment when the hoped-for premium profits kicked in. New entrants into the field will be in a particularly strong position, since they can often acquire the assets of previous firms at fire sale prices during bankruptcy proceedings. During the period of the below-cost pricing, meanwhile, consumers tend to stock up on the unusually inexpensive goods. This factor means it will take a longer time for the dominant firm to recoup the losses it incurred from the predatory pricing. A chain store variant of the predatory pricing model runs like this. Chain stores can draw on the profits they earn in other markets to sustain them while they suffer losses in a new market where they are trying to eliminate competitors by means of predatory pricing. But imagine a nationwide chain of grocery stores, which we'll call Megamart. Let's stipulate that Megamart has a thousand locations across the country and one billion dollars of capital invested. That comes out to one million per store. Those who warn of monopoly contend that Megamart can bring to bear its entire fortune in order to drive all competitors from one particular market into which it wants to expand. Now, for the sake of argument, we'll leave aside the empirical and theoretical problems with predatory pricing we've already established. Let's assume Megamart really can use its nationwide resources to drive all competitors from the field in a new market and could even keep all potential competitors permanently out of the market for sheer terror at being crushed by Megamart. Even if we grant all this, it still makes no sense from the point of view of a business strategy and economic judgment for Megamart to adopt the predatory pricing strategy. Yes, for a time it would enjoy abnormally high profits, and indeed, the prospect of those profits explains why Megamart would even consider this approach. But would the premium profits be high enough for the whole venture to be a net benefit for the company? George Reisman insists correctly that they would not. Such a premium profit is surely quite limited, 
perhaps an additional 100,000 per year, perhaps an even additional 500,000 per year, but certainly nothing remotely approaching the profit that would be required to justify the commitment of the firm's total financial resources. Let's suppose that the premium profit that would be reaped by Megamart after removing all its competitors is amounted to about $300,000. The average of those two figures assume also that the average rate of return in the economy is 10%. That means Megamart can afford to lose $3 million, the capital value of $300,000 per year, in order to seize the market for itself. Spending an amount greater than that would be a poor investment since the firm would earn a lower than average rate of return, lower that is than 10%. For that reason, Megamart's $1 billion in capital is simply irrelevant. What follows from this, according to Reisman, is that everyone contemplating an investment in the grocery business who has an additional $5 million or even just $1 million to put up is on as good as footing as Megamart is in attempting to achieve such premium profits, for it simply does not pay to invest additional capital beyond these sums, in other words, the predatory pricing game, if it actually could be played in these circumstances, would be open to a fairly substantial number of players, not just the extremely large and very rich firms, but everyone who had an additional capital available equal to the limited capitalized value of the monopoly gains that might be derived from an individual location. Market Defenses Coming back to the more general predatory pricing claim, one final argument buries it forever. Economist Dan Bordeaux invites us to imagine what would happen if Walmart adopted the predatory pricing strategy and embarked on a price war over pharmaceutical products with the aim of driving other drug retailers from the market. Who would be harmed by this? Consumers to be sure, as well as rival drug suppliers. But there's a less obvious set of victims and it's they who hold the key to solving the alleged problem. Companies that distribute the drugs to Walmart also stand to lose. Why? Because if Walmart drives competitors from the field and then raise drug prices, which is the whole point of predatory pricing, the fewer drugs will be sold. It's as simple as the law of demand. At a higher price of a good, there is a lower quantity to be demanded. This means a company like Merrick, which distributes a lot of drugs to Walmart, will sell less of its product. Is Merrick going to take that line down? Of course not. Since a successful predatory pricing strategy for Walmart would mean lower sales and profits for Merrick, it has a strong incentive to block Walmart's move, and it can do so by means of minimum or maximum resale price maintenance contracts. A minimum resale price maintenance agreement establishes a minimum sale price at which a retailer must sell a company's product. Such a minimum would make it possible for Walmart to engage in predatory pricing in the first place. They would have to sell the product at the stipulated minimum price. At the very least, they could not go any lower. Maximum resale price maintenance agreements would allow a company, once predatory pricing has succeeded, 
And again, for the sake of argument, we set aside all the reasons we've given why predatory pricing cannot work. To limit the extent of the damage, it would forbid a retailer to sell its products above a stipulated price. Walmart's punitive monopoly profits could not be realized to any great extent under such an arrangement. In other words, profits all across the structure of production are threatened when one stage, whether retailing or anything else, attempts to reap so-called monopoly profits. You can bet that firms threatened with a reduction in their own profits will be particularly alert to the various ways in which they can prevent the creation of said monopolies. What about the De Beers Diamond Cartel? Surely that is an example of free market monopoly, defying the economist's assurances that cartels on a free market tend to be unstable and short-lived. In fact, there has been no free market in diamonds. The South African government nationalized all diamond mines, even ones it hadn't yet discovered. Thus, a property owner who discovers diamonds on his property finds ownership title instantly transferred to the government. Mine operators, in turn, who lease the mines must get a license from the government. By an interesting happenstance, the licensee have all wound up being either De Beers itself or operators willing to distribute their diamonds through the De Beers Central Selling Organization. Miners trying to distribute diamonds in defiance of government restrictions have faced stiff penalties. In short, opponents of laissez-faire have spooked public opinion with the combination of bad history and even worse theory. The average person, although in a possession of a few, if any, hard facts in support of this unease at the prospect of laissez-faire, is nevertheless such that a dreadful state of affairs must be avoided and that our selfless public servants must protect us against the antisocial behavior of the incorrogable predators in the private sector. And that marks the end of that article. Very good, very good. I think another another good example for how a single monopolistic entity that creates a good that has not rescinded to this predatory pricing. Take TSMC. TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Factory is the only place, or I should say it's probably one of the only places, that five millimeter or smaller, I think five millimeter is the smallest, they're the only place that you can actually get those type of chips. And do we see TSMC price gouging individuals even though they basically control the market? I don't see that happening. They are literally one of the only manufacturers of this type of processing chip for computers across the globe. That would mean by necessary that they are a monopoly, albeit a privatized one. And do they price gouge? Nope. Why do you think that is? Because the input costs of the raw materials that go into the processing plant itself 
are created by other individuals in the market economy which do not allow TSMC to price gouge these products. There's checks and balances throughout the system. And this idea that we need governments to protect us from monopolies just creates the necessary situations available to make monopolies possible. Because all people do is just lobby the government to create artificial boundaries, to create the difficult processes that stop other individuals from entering the market and stopping other guys from being shit producers of products and services. Period. Full stop. That's exactly what happens. You may not like it, but accept it. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed today's read. Hope you guys learned something. Have a wonderful day.